What up, all you beautiful misfits and rejects out there? Thank you for joining me for episode 168 of Misfits and Rejects. In today's episode, I have a very special guest, Master Ian Armstrong from the Nam Yang Kung Fu School in Pai, Thailand. I don't know if you remember in past episodes me talking about living in Pai, Thailand for about six months back in 2015. Well, I met Master Ian then and I got familiarized with his Kung Fu school, his Kung Fu retreat center, and just his passion for Kung Fu. And I really wanted to bring him on for many years to have him tell him his story. And so recently when I was back in Thailand, I reached out to him and he happened to be coming back into town after being on a multi week speaking tour around the world. And he said, listen, I have a few hours. I'll be passing through Chiang Mai. Why don't we sit down and we can talk for a few hours in the lobby of my hotel. And I was so ecstatic and enthusiastic about finally getting the opportunity to speak to him about his life, his passion for Kung Fu, that I obviously took the opportunity, met him, and we just had an incredible conversation. It was super fun and really interesting to meet you know, and get to talk to in depth the Kung Fu master who has dedicated his life to not only Kung Fu, but spreading the message of his Kung Fu school, Nam Yang. So again, when I was living in Pai, I got to kind of observe, you know, what he would do on a daily and you could really see the impact he was having on all of the guests that came through. Those who were coming through just to experience Kung Fu for the first time, those who were coming through to experience a life changing kind of moment when they just felt lost in life. They didn't really know what they wanted out of life and they needed something to shock their system. And then those who were coming because they were already passionate about Kung Fu and wanted to increase their knowledge about Kung Fu and then become more of a practitioner and somebody who could then teach it and pass it on to the next generation. And that's really what Master Ian is about. That's really what he's trying to accomplish is he's trying to bring in people that then take the Nam Yang message out into the world and pass down his knowledge, his master's knowledge, his master's master's knowledge, and continue to share the message of Kung Fu and the Nam Yang school around the world. So I highly recommend if you're somebody who feels like they need a change in life, who maybe is very enthusiastic about Kung Fu or martial arts, check out his retreat center. It's in Pai, Thailand, one of the coziest, most beautiful parts of Thailand I have ever been to. It's north of Chiang Mai. And as he describes in our conversation, like what he really fell in love with about Pai and how it just really turned into a perfect fit for what he was trying to accomplish with his Kung Fu school. So I've left a link in the show notes so you can go click that link, get more familiar with where he's at, what he does, what it's all about, and that'll take you to his retreat center and familiarize yourself with the experience that you'll have at the Nan Yang Retreat Center. A few things to note about the conversation. Like I said, we did it in the hotel lobby. We had limited time. It was just almost a chance encounter. And so obviously there's going to be background noise. I did my best to dull that down, but very audible. You can totally understand our whole conversation and it's a cool conversation. So... I hope you enjoy that. And again, I can't recommend enough for you to go into the show notes, click that link, check out kungfuretreats.com, his website where you can learn about the Kung Fu style that he teaches, the Qigong style that he teaches. I mean, this isn't all about fighting. I mean, there is a very deep artistic philosophy and spirituality, if you will, behind everything that Kung Fu stands for and represents. And Kung Fu is just one part of it. He is a practitioner of Qigong as well and is capable of showing people the power of Qigong and what that can do to your life, your life force, and your life experience as you move through it. So thank you again for joining me today. I really hope you enjoy this episode with Master Ian Armstrong from the Nam Yang School of Kung Fu in Pai, Thailand. Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. 
I didn't fit in America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners, a lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today I'm joined by Master Ian Armstrong from the Nam Yang Kung Fu School in Pai, Thailand. Master Ian, welcome to the show. Good morning, Shaping. Yeah, it's so, nice to see you, man. Uh, it's been many years. This, yeah, yeah. I was just wondering if this brands me as a misfit and a reject, but uh, yeah, hopefully not. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, good to see you too. Yeah, man. It's uh, been a while and we had a, a nice time in Pai when I was living up there a few years back and, and yeah. you were... I think the Nam Yang school had already been going since, what, 2007? 2008. 2008. So you've been at it for, like, what, six years or something like that? Yeah, yeah. But it wasn't wasn't an easy road to get there. I mean, the the property that you had was raw land when you first bought it. Yeah, it was a soybean field. Um, So we had no infrastructure, uh, no water, no electricity, and there was no public roads to to get in so the first thing to do was get the the access road registered as a public road um then we had to build everything um building the road in was, was the first thing um buildings get the water sorted out get the electricity in uh so we bought the land in 2007 and we didn't open until 2008. So there's a year to to get the buildings up to a point where we could operate. What was the expectation when you first started? Did you have like a six-month projection or was it a, were you realistic with your expectations of how long it was going to take to get everything up and going? Um, it was a very challenging process. When we started, I had no experience at all of uh, doing business in Thailand. So it was a very steep learning curve. Uh, and by in 2007, was nothing like it is now. Um, we were pulling in builders who were really only used to local-style building Um and they often lived in kind of bamboo houses up in the mountains. So they were building what to them was kind of a luxury resort, but they weren't used to the, the standards that Westerners are used to. And everything was kind of, they, they, they don't work to plans. You just have to tell them, do this, do that. Uh, well, it was, it was quite a, quite an eye opener. Yeah. I'll bet. Um, but you have a Thai wife, so yeah. was that, did yeah. that make it a little bit easier? Um, if I didn't have a Thai wife, it wouldn't have happened. I see. Um, yes. So it's a good good point. Uh, something which a lot of people miss is that uh, actually my wife contributes as much to the Kung Fu retreat as I do. Um, but her work is somewhat invisible. All of the dealings with uh, the local authorities, the local bureaucracy, the Labour Department, the Immigration Department, taxation, water, electricity, internet, uh, hiring local staff and any any purchasing. Um, there's a whole whole raft of jobs that Boo, my wife, does. 
and um, she really is essential and she really contributes a lot but it's easy to to completely miss all of that yeah, yeah I'm sure it's uh, something I'm familiar with just the, the process in which a lot of people come to a place third world country or something like yeah. that where labor is cheap they have a little bit of capital or a lot mm, of capital mm, saved up they have mm, a vision of what they want mm, and they see dollar signs or they see mm, it being an like more or less easy process and then a lot of them leave broke and confused yeah. as to how all their money was gone yeah uh my advice is that you have to try to gain an understanding of local people and local culture um and you you got to try to deal with people on terms that they're used to so Bit of, bit of sensitivity, bit of empathy is really important. Uh, if you come to Thailand, then it's important to be aware that having uh, a white face or a Western face identifies you as someone who is clearly rich, has money to waste, uh, and is probably fairly gullible. So you're kind of like a, a blank check to be written out um, and you do need to be a little bit a little bit wary of this so was yeah. Thailand a place that you always had in mind for this sort of enterprise or taking your knowledge and, and bring it to a place like this that you could run these types of retreats or was it just a circumstance after you met your wife that it made sense uh, definitely the latter okay so uh, how I got into this it wasn't. It wasn't a question of oh, I really want to go to Thailand. So, what kind of business can I run? Um, my passion is for Chinese kung fu, and I've been organising training camps since I think it was 1987, the first one. And I really wanted to set up a kind of permanent retreat so we can run these type of full-time courses on an ongoing basis and I began by looking at setting up in the UK purely because that's where I come from uh, come from the southern edge of London and the UK sadly is a, a cold damp place where everything's far too expensive and there's over regulation which makes doing business really really difficult so it didn't stack up and next I looked at Malaga in the south of Spain as somewhere where things are cheaper easier to get done and food's better so and the weather's better the weather's a lot better um, actually it was quite a good idea but things were ticking over really very nicely in the UK so I, I've got a full-time martial arts center back in the UK uh, that time I was running three, and the things were all pretty okay, and there wasn't a great impetus to to start the retreat, so it kind of got put on the back burner. And then at the beginning of 2006, um, I met Boo, who's now my wife, and in the UK. Uh, no, no, I met Boo on the internet, okay. um, but I I started traveling to Thailand uh, to, to spend time with Boo 
And only then did I think about uh, basing this project in Thailand. But, yeah, it was okay. I had, at the time, the Thai, Thai girlfriend, and I'd been... I used to come to train in Thailand with my teacher, Master Tan, uh, back in the 1980s and 90s. So I was used to training in Thailand. I was used to Thailand. Um, Why did you come here and train with him? Well, he was based in Singapore. Our club is Nam Yang is based in Singapore. And in Singapore, he was always really busy. So there were always people wanting to, you know, milling around him, asking questions he had to work. When we came to Thailand, uh, he didn't have any distractions, so he could focus more on training. So we developed a pretty good deal that I would fund the trip to Thailand in return for which he would teach me Kung Fu. Um, and it was a good formula. It worked well. And back in the... Uh, late 80s, early 90s, there were no budget airlines. So flights were out of the question, um, budget-wise. So we would get the overnight bus that ran from Singapore all the way up through Malaysia to Hajai in the south of Thailand. And usually we would train somewhere near to Hajai. Um, but the first, the first time I came when it was just myself and Master Tan, he met, he met a few of his friends in Hajai, and we ended up, up doing a trip to Chiang Mai. So it was train to Bangkok, and then train from Bangkok to Chiang Mai. And we had just three days in Chiang Mai. But it was quite, quite inspiring. Um, everything was a lot less developed in 1992. And there were a lot of advertisements for trips to Mehong Son. Um, in, in those days, it was advertised as trips to see the hill tribes. Uh, the, the road from Chiang Mai to Bai was still dirt road in those days. And I really wanted to give it a try, but we didn't have time. So I'd always said, well, one day I'll have a look at Mehong Son. Um, and that kind of explains why we end up ended up in Bai because when I started coming to to Cebu in Thailand this idea started forming hang on if I were to do a residential Kung Fu school this is a really good place to do it and I hadn't thought of doing it outside of Europe until uh, I was with Boo Thailand very convenient for Singapore easy to bring teachers up from Singapore um relatively cheap, uh, relatively easy place to do business. And it's a really nice place to be. And that's, that's a really key uh, consideration people like to be in Thailand. Uh, so we looked at a number of places in Thailand, but I said to me, before we make a decision, I want to see Mehong Son. You know, it's... I'd always wanted since 1992 to go to Mehong Som. This was 2006, 14 years later. Uh, and I would have headed straight for Mehong Som City because I didn't really know anything about the province. And at that time, 
Boo was a nurse. She's working in a hospital in Chonburi. And she said to me, well, look, my friends at work say, if you're going to go to Mehong Son, you've got to go to Bai. Bai is a great place. Um, you've got to go to Bai. I said, well, okay, what's great about it? Oh, I don't know really, but my friends say it's great. They say it's a really nice place. Uh, she sent me a little a map of Bai, and Bai in those days was about a quarter of the size which it is now. And it's like, okay, well, you've got a little two-street town here. I can't see what the bus is about, but here we go. If you can organize how we get to buy, we'll do it. Uh, so I think we met up in Bangkok, headed up to Chiang Mai, spent a night in Chiang Mai, jumped on a minibus to buy, and first set foot in buy on Christmas Eve 2006. And that was when it was booming with Thai tourists. So that was the time when it had this big popularity. They just made the films up there. Really popular with Thai tourists. And yeah, it was a, it was a great, great experience. On, honestly, the minibus ride through the mountains sold it to me as much as anything else. I was half sold before we got there. Um, because I'd never experienced mountain roads like that before. Mm. Experienced an awful lot more since, but... Uh, yeah, there's what, like 780-something turns, they say? That's right, yeah. It's just curve after curve, hairpin after hairpin, mountain after mountain. Um, and town, it was high season. It was really buzzing, and within three days, I'd said to Boo, look, if, if, we don't, if we can't make it here, we won't make it anywhere. Um so it, it kind of all led from there. Yeah. And retrospectively, there was the question, did we make the right choice? Yeah. And for a, a good few years, we weren't sure because Bai has overemployment. In other words, there are more jobs than there are people to do them. So it's very difficult to hire staff in Bai. Uh, it's difficult to get a lot of things done. And it, it was more so back then than it is now. So we, we spent f- about four or five years saying, did we get it right? And then subsequently, Bai has kind of grown and it's developed more. And we kind of said, yeah, yeah, we got it right. Um, it's, it's an easy place to be, uh, a traveler, a foreigner. There's, the whole town is set up for kind of travellers, backpackers. It's super easy to rent a motorcycle. Uh, they have all the kind of the, the restaurants, the bars, the things that uh, tourists like. And luckily, we're I mean, on, a, on a moped. It, we're only five minutes from the middle of town, but where we're based, you can't see the town because there's a, there's a little mountain ridge in the way. So at the retreat, you feel like you're right out in the mountains, but you're only five minutes away from town. And some of the people that we get 
don't want the town aspect, but a lot of them do. Mm-hmm. So you got a good choice. If you don't want to head into town, you don't have to, and you can feel like you're right out in the mountains. Um, but if you get the urge, you can jump on your bike into town and yeah no it's yeah. an idyllic little village i guess it's not a village anymore it's going more into a town yeah. Yeah. um set in the hills the thai hills and it's just beautiful i think i'd like now to transition for the audience to kind of understand your kung fu school your passion yeah. for kung fu um i know you do obviously retreats for individuals mm-hmm. who want to learn kung fu learn yep. qigong yeah but you also have um an instructor program for people who yeah. want to learn yeah. to be kung fu instructors. Can yeah. you kind of talk us through what those two aspects of your retreats are like? Yeah. Uh, kung fu is an incredibly deep uh, topic. It's, it is a real art. It's an art which has its own culture, ethos, philosophy, history, traditions, um, when you start Kung Fu, you're kind of joining the Kung Fu family. And often the way it's conveyed in the West, it has to be really trimmed down. And you get something which is essentially just a self-defense class. Uh, and that's not real Kung Fu. And my uh, passion is to teach the Kung Fu in its entirety, in its depth. And do that I kind of need people full time uh, where they can they can really concentrate and immerse themselves in it so I'm trying to give them the sort of experience that I used to get when I travelled to Singapore lived at the Kung Fu Club in Singapore you know we'd go to Thailand and we'd just be Kung Fu all the time and at the retreat we have accommodation we provide meals and <clears throat> obviously provide it would provide a full-time training program so for people that want to really experience kung fu then you know put together what what i think is the best possible package yeah. um and again it's important that this isn't simply a business it's it's a passion yeah. uh spent my whole life studying these arts and I'm trying to teach them properly with their with the real character and some people come for just a few days in which case you can get a taste for it and you can learn some useful basic stuff to take away with you uh, you come for a few weeks you can really kind of get into it if you come for a month then you can learn some a good grounding in Kung Fu and Chi Kung. You can really, in a month, you can be really pretty proficient in the Chi Kung and have a strong grounding in Kung Fu. For people that really want to take it further, then we do instructor training courses. Um, there is a lot of emphasis on teaching in the instructor training courses. So sometimes there's a bit of confusion there that people assume that an instructor training course is essentially an advanced Kung Fu course, which it's not. It's a course in Kung Fu and how to teach. Um, for the Qi Kung instructor training course, 
it's just three weeks. But a lot of people don't want to spend too long. Uh, they don't have the opportunity to to stay for months. They've got to get holidays from work. So to teach practical qigong, we can we can do that course in three weeks. Then we have the kung fu instructor training courses and. Kung Fu is, is a life's work. So, however long your course is, it's, you, you never complete it. Uh, you can spend your life doing Kung Fu quite literally and you never finish. So, how long is an instructor course? We've started doing concentrated 200 hour teacher training courses, uh, which give level one instructorship and that's packed in the four weeks but, and it's a very very intense very hard work four weeks and it is a short time but for a lot of people they can't they can't hatch out more it's actually for a lot of people it's a long time because four weeks is probably your entire year's holiday allowance from from work uh, the next stage is to do an internship and we do two versions of that so you always start with the 200 hour teacher training and then there's the internal kung fu and qigong internship which lasts another three months and that's a mix of full-time training with teaching so uh teaching some lessons to beginners and assisting the instructors with other lessons because we think it's really really important that as a teacher you have teaching experience uh, and I've been training people to teach Kung Fu for over 20 years now um, some of them have been really successful some of them haven't but you've got to make that jump from theory to, to doing it in practice and it's better to do that under supervision Absolutely. that's, that's what we've found uh, so three months is the kind of internal Kung Fu and Qi Kung internship then you've got the six month full internship as a, as a full bore Kung Fu teacher um, and that's that's pretty good uh, so if you've done your your first month on the intensive teacher training, then six months as a, a teaching intern. That's a really solid basis. Um, after that, then we do an apprentice instructor scheme whereby people stay on longer. Uh, and from there, uh, the, next, the next step up is to become part of the instructor team at the retreat. So I have now... Uh, people that have been with us for over four years and they're basically just um, they're just part of the team now so that's the kind of process, the progression um, but I mean what we really want is for people to kind of spread out across the world and, and teach the arts um, it's no good accumulating 200 teachers at the Kung Fu Retreat uh, the last, last week at the retreat we had 14 teachers and three students, which is quite imbalanced. Um, so we, 
we need to get people out there teaching. The the style in which you practice, yeah, it's a specific style that you adopted or you came into through Master Tong. Is that what I understand? Yeah. Um, actually, in Kung Fu, people usually talk about a style. So you usually be talking about like Tai Chi, Wing Chun, Wing Da. Uh, we we are Nam Yang, That's and right. Nam Yang is a is a club. It's an association, and within our association, we teach a few different styles. Uh, but they, the association has been going since 1954, and you know, we've had a, a lineage of teachers who have taught these these styles, which are all kind of interrelated. So our principal kung fu style is the tiger crane combination art which comes from southern Fujian province in China, which is where the southern Shaolin Temple was. So it's a very traditional, very original uh, type of Kung Fu. And it is basically a kind of a, a synthesis of the, the ancient white crane art and the Tai Chi or the Tiger style. Then we do the Shuangyang Bai He, which is the internal white crane art. And if someone who, who, who has no real familiarity with Kung Fu, if you looked at this, you'd think we were doing Tai Chi. So it's very soft, it's very slow. Uh, but it's actually a Shaolin art from the, the Shaolin branch of Kung Fu, whereas Tai Chi is from the Wudang branch of Kung Fu. Uh, then we've got the full Shaolin weapon system, and then we do a number of different forms of Qigong, including the Tongling Qigong, which is a, a very good one for beginners. It's a, it's a nice, uh, very effective, very easy, basic Qigong. Bodhidharma's Vain Tendon Qigong, which is a harder, more Shaolin style of Qigong. And then we do iron shirt chikung, but only for the very, very advanced students. Uh, and iron shirt, just so the audience knows, is the one that you see mostly like on shows where someone has bricks broken over their head, or like they use their focus to create a self, essentially like a sheet of armor with their skin. Yeah, exactly. That's why it's called iron shirt because it's kind of like generating a shield for yourself, a sheet of armor for yourself. Um, so, yeah, that's the one where you, you you kind of get trodden in the broken glass and hit with axes and all the things that a lot of people are somewhat reluctant to do. So, um, And it's, it's the most dramatic one, so that's the best one for shows. Of course. Uh, but it's not for everybody. Um, Can you describe to the audience what chi is? Hmm. And like qigong, like what is yeah. the... What are you trying to accomplish when you practice these things? Uh, well, step by step, qi is a Chinese word which has got a number of different translations. And we could translate it as energy, but also translate it as breath, air, gas, oxygen. Uh, gung means work, effort study uh, 
So Qigong is working and cultivating the, the breath or the energy. When we're speaking English, if we want to say breath, air, gas, oxygen, we just do. So we usually reserve the word qi, the Chinese word for this specific type of energy which doesn't have an English translation. But then that can result in people misunderstanding a little bit Qigong. Um, yes, it's, it's cultivating the body's energy, but it is also cultivating the breath, the breathing. Um, so we're practicing to cultivate this internal energy, intrinsic energy, um, which is very linked with our breathing. Uh, looking to charge the body up with energy, make sure the energy is circulating properly through the vessels and meridians, make sure that it is concentrated in the right places. Um, all of this links very much with Chinese medicine. I mean, what a Chinese doctor is trying to do is essentially to make sure your chi flow is going right. But you go to a Chinese doctor and you're doing the curative side of it. If you practice qigong, you're doing the preventative side of it. So that hopefully, you don't need to go to the doctor. Can you see qi physically? With like practice, yeah. With practice? Um, what do you see when you see it? Is it like auras? You know, you hear people who can see like an aura. Yeah. So the, the energy that makes up an aura is qi. Yeah. So then we come to this kind of linguistic thing. Uh, it's an aura. No, it's not. It's qi. No, it's not qi. It's an aura. Um, all we have is a kind of clash of languages. So the, the body's energy, the qi, extends beyond the body. And by learning to see it, you see what in the West we call the aura. Uh, some people may never be able to see it. For the vast majority of people, you will see it, um, but not in huge detail. And then you get a few kind of exceptional people who kind of, they can really see everything, but that's very, very rare. And it doesn't seem to really depend on how much practice you've done. Um, so some some people can can see it in, in great detail. When you're not at um, your retreat training center, um, and say you're out traveling, doing you do different um, speeches and stuff like that around yeah. the world or teach around the world, do you have a morning practice that you just practice on your own? Like, are you doing Qigong by yourself in your hotel room when you're traveling, or um, are you practicing Kung Fu on your own? Uh, to some extent, but probably not as much as you think. Um, one of the reasons for having a Kung Fu retreat is for me to be able to practice. And it's ideal that okay, I wake up in the morning and I walk down for two or three minutes and there I am at the training area and I go go through the Qigong with everybody else. So at the retreat I've got a nice regular program worked out and I can do my training. And when when I'm flying around it's incredibly disruptive. Uh, 
and often I'm having to kind of rush out to get to the, the course or the, the seminar. So practice suffers. But a, a useful point, which I think uh, a lot of people, if you're not, if you don't do this full time, you miss it. Uh, <clears throat> people think, okay, you you need to do this every day. And yeah, when we're teaching people, we say, right, here's your here's your training program, and you need to do it every day. Uh, if you get to a level where you really have a lot and you understand it a lot, then you know which things you have to practice and you know what is the right thing to practice at the right time. So your training is not uh, a ritual, it's not a dogma. It's not like, I have to do this at this time every day. Uh, your training is for your own benefit and if you really know what you're doing, you know, okay, at this point in time, I need to do this. Yeah. And I know, I know why I need to do that. So, yeah, okay, that's what I do. You can then um, home right in and do what you need to do. And so for the, for the benefit of uh, the people that don't know what you know, I've just got back from a journey which took me from midday Tuesday until Friday morning, um, hanging around in airports, jet-lagged. Um, and when, you, when you're like that, you don't really feel like training at all. But there are certain things like deep breathing that are actually really helpful. So we live in the real world, um, not the kind of ideal world. And it's very tempting, you know, you think of a, maybe you think of a Kung Fu master and you've got some old Chinese guy living in a monastery up in the mountains in perfectly fresh air and everything about it is perfect. Even for the, even for the old guys up in the temples, it's not perfect all the day. Um, life has its challenges and the practice that we do should help us face those challenges. That's what it's about. That's what it's for. So ultimately, that's that's how it is, rather than it being a kind of a ritual that we do every day. Yeah. How did you find Kung Fu? I mean, growing up, it sounds like you were, you were drawn to it for specific reasons. Yeah. Uh, I guess everybody's got their own views on, on karma and destiny and the like uh, but essentially I didn't get a chance to do Kung Fu until I was 18 I was born in 1962 uh, the West didn't really become aware of Kung Fu until 72, 1972 when you had the Kung Fu explosion and you had this big Kung Fu craze and it, it all stemmed from Enter the Dragon. Yeah, the Bruce Lee film hit the cinemas and the, the, the world went kung fu crazy. Uh, and it was, it was an absolute kind of phenomenon. But you had already been practicing martial arts prior to that explosion? Oh, no, 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 no. I was 10 
when okay. that came out. And um, now, as a child, I loved fighting. Now, that was something that I was good at. I wasn't, didn't have great social skills as a kid. Wasn't a great talker, but I was a good fighter. And everybody likes to do what they're good at. So we would be fighting at school or over the local park or whatever. Um, and I was just a, just a kid. Um, you know, when the Kung Fu craze hit, so I was 10, and the, any, any kind of Chinese guy who worked at the, the local takeaway or whatever could set up a Kung Fu class and make loads of money by just doing a few bits and bobs because there weren't Kung Fu teachers available in the West. There may be just a few in the cities. Um, my brother did judo, but I, I didn't like the look of that because you can punch people and I couldn't see what the point was in having a fight when you couldn't punch someone in the face. Because that's basically what a lot of our fights involved. Um, I quite wanted to do karate, and there were karate clubs around at that time. But going back to the 60s, the early 70s, there was a perception in the West that karate involved kind of chopping someone on the neck and they would mysteriously drop dead. Yeah. And yeah, that was, this was my mum's impression of karate. So she says, in no way you're going there because I don't want you killing people. So karate was out of the question. So I didn't do any kind of formal fighting training till I was 14. And up to that point, no one had beaten me in a fight. So I didn't really see that I needed to do a lot of training because I could beat people anyway. And then I had a fight with a boxer in the school playground and lost it. And my nose was broken in really bad. You can still see the, the kind of funny shape. It goes to one side. It's all dented in. Um, and it bled for a week. It didn't stop bleeding for a week. Uh, so I was really kind of smashed in. And it's like, well... They said, there's only one thing to do about it. So, well, well before the nose had healed, I was up at a local boxing club. If you can't beat them, join them. Because um, I decided I needed to learn how to box. So I boxed when I was about 14, 15. But truthfully, I wasn't, uh, wasn't an outstanding boxer. Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't, and I'm a very ambitious person. If I do something, I, wanna, I, can't, be, I can't be kind of an also-ran. I've got to be up there. So... Uh, yeah, I finished the boxing when I was 15. Just went back to sort of street fighting. And it's only when I started university that, okay, that was right up in the middle of London and they had lots of sports clubs and a whole range of martial arts. And I looked through them all and I joined a club which actually did a combination of Kung Fu and Taekwondo. Uh, but I guess when I chose the Kung Fu, I was attracted to the the fact that it had more depth than a, a lot of the martial arts. It's a, it's a kind of gateway into a completely different culture, especially back then. You know, the, it was not at that age. I had no expectation I would ever be able to travel to Asia in my life, um, and it's a, it's a kind of a whole whole different world that it opens up and sort of a little way down the line the the two guys that ran the club together the, the kung fu guy and the taekwondo guy had an argument and it kind of split into two so i stuck with the kung fu because that's what i really liked um 
and yeah, been been going since then. When does Master Tan come into the whole picture? Uh, so the guy that I trained with in London was a student of Master Tan, and st- started there in '81, and. My first trip to Singapore was in 87. 87? 1997, yeah. And we we went to Singapore for a demonstration and competition. There's about 20 of us went over from the clubs in London. Um, And that's when I first met Master Tan. And he was very keen to expand Nam Yang in the West. Uh, he saw a great deal of potential. Sure, he, he would have liked to to be part of the kind of the big boom in the early 70s, but he hadn't had the chance then. But he was looking for Westerners to, to spread the art out. And he was looking for people with a bit of intelligence and a bit of flair and a, uh, he had potential. So he kind of kind of picked out half a dozen students and was trying to train us up. Um, I was only there for about five weeks, first time around. Went back two years later, uh, same thing, and he was trying to kind of work on um, promising students. Um, And then he came over to the UK for the first time shortly after that, so I trained more with him there. And then... 92, I just kind of, I, I kept, I was often corresponding with him, you know, I used to, no internet in those days, so he was, you'd, we'd write and he would send a physical letter to Singapore, and sometimes uh, I could phone him up, but it was very expensive, and there were no mobiles, so if he wasn't in the office where the phone was, you know, you couldn't answer the call. Uh, and yeah, 92 was the first time that he invited me. I could just come over, you know, just come over and we'll do some training. So I went over on my own. That was the year we went to Chiang Mai. And from then on, I used to go over kind of once or twice a year. We would bring Master Tan to the UK every year. Um, and it just kind of built up from there. Was the level quite a bit different when you came to Singapore for the first time with the individuals that you've been training with in England? When you got there and you saw the students at Master Tan event training and you were incorporated into the, the tribe, yeah, you were like, wow, yeah. this is a different level? Yeah, it was, it was very different, but not necessarily in the way that we expected. Um, so we were kind of surrounded by people whose Kung Fu was incredibly good, um, certainly by the standards that we were used to. Um, or to put it another way, who were far, far better than us. But they, in Singapore, the, they concentrate on practicing their Kung Fu. We used to do loads of kind of basic physical training in, in London and a lot of stretching. And they don't do much of that at the club at all. It's down to you to keep yourself in shape. You go to the Kung Fu club, you learn Kung Fu. And we used to do kind of competition-style sparring in the UK. They didn't do any of that. Um, they just concentrated on the routines and uh, kind of basic fighting skills, not competition type type stuff. But there were some some very kind of very tough guys over there. Uh, it wasn't what 
we were used to and perhaps not quite what we'd been led to expect. But at the same time, it was really kind of impressive um, and quite frustrating that we had all these guys saying, no, no, you should be doing it like this. And um, it was yeah, very hard to do what, what they were asking us to do. So they were like, I guess you're saying more technique and you were more about application in the UK? Uh, UK was, it was very much about physical conditioning and yeah, mostly physical conditioning and a bit of application. Um, whereas in Singapore, yeah, they're very, very technical. Because, yeah, you, you are what, world champion two times in Kung Fu? Yeah, I was, but that wasn't until after I trained the Master Time in Singapore. So, yeah, so I'm just trying to remember the years. Uh, yeah, my first world championship win was 1993, and the second one was 2004. Uh, and the first one was for weapons, and I started seriously on the weapon training in 1987 uh, with a guy called Tan Chai Lee, who was one of the teachers in Singapore. Um, and then carried on with him in 89. And then when I started going in the 90s, Master Tan uh, was teaching me as well on the weapon routines. And that kind of saw me through, and I got that win in 1993. Yeah. And that was the first, first big one. Did you feel accomplished? Were you proud of yourself? Mm. Or is, are you not supposed well, to feel proud of yourself when you practice? Well, try to let go of that ego. It, yeah, it just depends on your own personal approach. I was actually quite surprised I got the, the gold medal. I was in Los Angeles, that competition. Um, but it's kind of, you get a win, and it, what it means is that on the day when you were there, up against the people who were there, you were the one the judges liked the most. Um, a different day, maybe you wouldn't get it. Uh, and in Master Tan was very much perfectionist, uh, so it didn't matter what you won, it was never good enough. Um, and it was kind of interesting that that year when I won the, the competition, um, I went back to Singapore about two months later, and I mean, yeah, he'd been he'd been teaching me, but it was I mean, he was kind of classic classic kung fu master. That uh, start the shooting off very slowly, test the patients, test them out. Are they worth it? Are they not worth it? Will you put too much time and effort in? And went back in 1993. Obviously, he knew that I'd won the competition. He said, ah, okay, so. Uh, so you're world champions now. Okay. Maybe we need to take the training more seriously. So taking the training more seriously was, we're going we're gonna to go back to horse riding stance. And we spent about the next four or five weeks practicing the horse riding stance and the, the sum chen, the basic routine. And his kind of approach was, well, if you're world champion, we need to get it right. So we're going to go back to the most basic thing and make sure it's perfect before we do anything else. And so we went right back to the most basic stuff and spent about five weeks on really basics. Uh, 
And that was a, was a big kind of turning point in the training because he was kind of said, well, right, okay, from now I'm going to take you seriously and we'll get the, go back to the basics, get them right and build it up from there. And I got so used to, okay, what are we going to do this year? Well, we'll work on the basics again. And it was a big surprise when eventually he said, okay, right, well, we'll do the advanced stuff now. And so, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm amazed, yeah. Is Master Tom still with us? Um, oh, sorry, you very sadly, he died just one week ago today. Oh, no, I'm yeah. sorry to hear that. Yeah. So kind of, we're still kind of in mourning for that. Um, I mean, a really, really big shake-up for the whole association because the, the guy who's been our father figure ever, ever since we started um, has, has finally passed. Um, and we're going to be kind of reeling from that for a few months yet. I'll bet. Yeah, I'll bet. Um, yeah, it sounds like you had a lot of special years together of training. Yeah. And, and yeah. just Because, I mean, he was even coming up to Pi when oh, I yeah. was there. Like, yeah. he'd come regularly. Yeah. And... Uh, no, he was very active. He really liked coming to Pi. He really liked Pi. Um, enjoyed But he likes Thailand. Yeah, mm-hmm. he likes Thailand. Um that was how I'm there, and that's who introduced me to Thailand. Um, so, yeah, it all, it all really fitted together very well. Yeah. Uh, but now, I think it's, it's one of a number of things that has focused me very much on transmitting our art properly to the next generation. Uh, When I'm getting older and I can feel it now, it's not as easy to do a lot of things as it used to be. And starting to question how much longer I can really still properly physically do the Kung Fu. Uh, I mean, we never stop practicing, but you kind of phase into doing the softer stuff. So there's a lot of things which I need to really unload. And I've got a good group of senior students, uh, but I've got to make a very careful, very structured plan for the next 15 years, I think, to make sure that everything is passed on properly. Um, so that's, that's what I'm taking back to by today. Yeah. How does it work within the, the lineage? You know, with Master Tom passing a week ago, you were, were you, were you, were you one of his top students, I'm assuming? I was, well, I am the senior student as I was the first one to initiate under Master Tom. So now does that you take over, like, as head of the club, or, like, how does it really work? Um, Did you get voted in? No. Well, in terms of Master Tom's students, I am the senior student, but... The other students who trained under Master Tom are my Kung Fu brothers and sisters. Um, that's slightly different to those who are my students. So for the, for the students who train alongside me, I'm older brother. I'm not their master. And we shouldn't forget that there are still uh, a number of Master Tom's 
Kung Fu Brothers live in Singapore. Okay. So these are students who train under Master Ung, who taught Master Tom. So what we have is a family. Yeah, Nam Yang is a family. And you've got to kind of know your position in the family. Uh, I'm arguably the most proactive one in teaching and building the club. I've got students in a lot of different countries. Um, but it doesn't, we're not going to have, I think, one person who is kind of the boss. You know, it's, it's a family and everybody kind of works together. Um, for my, for my students, the people that I've taught, okay, I'm the master. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's still, you know, we've still got a lot of old masters in Singapore who are more senior than me and not, not to forget that. Master Hui is now, I believe, over 80, maybe even 81. Um, so he's the oldest and arguably the most senior. Um, and there's a few more in their 70s. And then there's quite a group of guys in their 60s who were my teachers in the early days. Um, they're not overly active in Kung Fu at the moment, but if there's, if there's a big event, you know, they still show up. So it's kind of good to have the different generations in the family. Do uh, Kung Fu masters have like other jobs aside from their Kung Fu schools, like to make a living, or are they primarily surviving off their Kung Fu schools? Most of them have other jobs. A few of them are full-time. Okay. Um... I'm sorry, I'm, I'm having to think now. In nobody in Namyang, Singapore, uh, teaches kung fu full time, and they don't. I guess nobody is really teaching professionally over there. Uh, so nearly all the old guys in Singapore, I mean, they don't they don't teach anymore, um, but they're still there. They're still around. Um, in the West, we got a few that are full-time. Um, but most of them are part-time. At the Kung Fu retreat, then there's a number that are, that are teaching full-time. Yeah, because we've got, a, we've got quite a big team there. But most of them teach... Uh, they have a day job, only they teach as a hobby, yeah. Yeah. Real quick side note, what did you study at university? I studied zoology, okay. which hasn't got much to do with Kung Fu at all. <laughs> uh, it's good to have a, a kind of good understanding of anatomy. I studied zoology and then I worked as a school teacher specializing in biology. And I taught Kung Fu alongside that so I was you know I started off I had the day job I was a school teacher and I had the kind of passion which was Kung Fu and it was actually very useful to do formal education training so after doing a degree in zoology I did a postgraduate degree in education and as a teacher I mean obviously we used to do a lot of ongoing training in teaching and it's it was very useful to do that, uh, to, to have a good understanding of how to teach. And as a teacher, rather than trying to go for 
promotion and work my way up as a teacher, what I was doing was building up my Kung Fu schools, Kung Fu teaching, uh, and just staying at the basic level of teaching. I went, first time I tried to go full time as a teacher, uh, sorry, first time I tried to go full time as a Kung Fu teacher, didn't really work because I was doing kind of bits of work here and there to support me while I was trying to trying to build up the Kung Fu schools. Um, so I went back into doing what in England we call supply teaching, which means you stand in when teachers are sick. Um, it was quite a good job, and it meant that I could... I wasn't committed to any particular dates. So if I needed to go to Singapore to train, I could go, come back, get work. It was quite, it was quite well paid in those days, so it was a good job. Um, and then my second attempt at full-time teaching worked uh, and that was how I finally got to do Kung Fu full-time so that was the big that was the great escape yeah that was the big jump and I ran a full-time martial arts centre in England uh, starting in 1998, yeah, beginning in 1998 was when I went full-time for the second the second attempt, and it worked. And I've been a full-time Kung Fu teacher since then, uh, 21 years now. Um, and then the retreat, yeah, we began that project in 2007. So you really developed your entrepreneurial skills along the way, it sounds like. Yeah. I had no formal training in business whatsoever. I've just kind of picked everything up. Um, Everything is now much easier to self-teach than it used to be. Um, Because since maybe for about the last eight or nine years, you can teach yourself from YouTube pretty much. It didn't used to be like that. Yeah. Even even kind of going full time in the beginning in 1998. I mean, you hardly had internet in those days. Um, it was there, but it was only for kind of really geeky people who would have internet. Uh, well, I didn't have an email address till 2004. Um, it's, it's very easy to forget how we didn't have what we have now. Um, modern conveniences. Yeah. So. It's all been pretty much self-taught and learned as you go. And I have a lot of people now saying, oh, I'm doing a course in this, I'm doing a course in that, I'm doing a course. And I do often think, you know, don't, you don't need to do five different courses before you actually try to set up, you know. Um, just, just go for it, set up and learn what you need to learn along the way. Don't think that I'm going to do a course and then I'll have everything I need, um, because you won't. Um, What you need is the initiative and the drive and the motivation, and you will pick up along the way all the things that you need to do. Yeah, Yeah, that would have been my final question. Just five more minutes of your time. um, Do you follow MMA? Are you into that sort of thing? I used to. Yeah. Yeah, I used to. Um, but I haven't really followed it for some time now. 
had MMA come along at a different point in time, would you think that you would have been interested in like trying to uh, compete in MMA? Yes. With your skills? Oh, oh, hang on. Like be a fighter in the octagon, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. Is that ever an ambition that you might have had at some point in your past? If we go back to when I started Kung Fu, or even before that when I used to do boxing, uh, had MMA been around in those days, which it wasn't, um, I would almost certainly have been attracted to it and wanted to do it. Um, I did boxing because that was what was available in England in the uh, 70s. Uh, and it was it was what most kind of street fighters did to, to sharpen themselves up. Um, so at that age, when I had that mentality, yeah, um, I would have would have definitely wanted to do MMA. So if I was a, say you take me as a, as a child or a teenager and put me into the present, um, present world, then yeah, um, that's the sort of thing I would have wanted to do. Once I had, I suppose in my early years of Kung Fu, if that had come along, then I'd have been, yeah, you know, I'll have a, have a go at that. By the time that it had come along, I was sufficiently kind of immersed in the Kung Fu that I, I, I have no... I've never had any desire to jack in a Kung Fu and do something different. So I've done... I've tried doing stuff with a lot of martial arts and a lot of martial arts teachers because when you're... Uh, when, when martial arts is what you do, you, you inevitably meet lots of other martial arts people and you pick up lots of stuff from different martial arts. Um, but I've never desired to move away from the Kung Fu. You know, in the Kung Fu, I've got what I like. Uh, I know what I'm good at and I don't have a desire to change. So not, not to forget... UFC started in 1993, so it started in the year that I first won the world, world title in Kung Fu, um, but it was massively different. It was take guys from different martial arts, put them together and see what happens. Um, and what we now call MMA um, didn't really start to develop for a good many years after that that beginning in 93. You know, for a long time, UFC would be, okay, here we've got a Thai boxer against an American wrestler, and let's see what happens. Um, Some years down the line, it was, well, we just want to know what works under UFC rules. So MMA, as we have it now, is really a kind of an answer to what do you need to do to win UFC? Yeah. Um, but and especially now, I mean, I'm 57. Um, I'm not going to win any fighting competitions. Uh, but I'm not too worried about that. You know, my uh, 
kind of mission in life is very clear. What I've got to do is pass on the the arts and the teachings that I've learned. Um, make sure that they're passed on properly for the next generation, and as far as possible, that the next generation are ready to pass them on to the one after that. And that's that's my job for the rest of my life. Um, and then the the Kung Fu retreat gives me a vehicle to to do that. The instructor training courses again are designed to do just that. Um, think in life. And we all need to be very clear about our purpose. Um, and, and achieving kind of happiness in life does require that we know what, what we're doing, you know, what our purpose is, and we have a sense of direction. And I'd like to say, that's, for me, that's just very clear. You know, I've got to pass this stuff on. But the next generation set up that generation to pass it on further. Um, and that's my mission. So, that's beautiful, man. Thank you for sharing all this wonderful wisdom and insights about your life. Yeah. And if the audience wants to come find you, they can come find you at what namyang.com or. Uh, no, it's it's Kung Fu Retreat. Kung Fu Retreat. Kung Fu Retreat dot com. Uh, or if you search for Kung Fu Thailand, we'll be up there. So, Kung Fu Retreat, Kung Fu Retreat Thailand, and and you get us. Um, so we're, we're easy to find. Awesome, Master Ian. Thank yeah. you for joining me. Thanks. Appreciate Thanks a lot. Time. Yeah. Awesome, Master Ian. Thank you so much for joining me. It was a pleasure seeing you again. It's been a few years, and I uh, couldn't have been happier to get to pick your brain a little bit more in depth about you know how you found Kung Fu, learning more about Master Tan, and the evolution of the Nam Yang Kung Fu School in Pai, Thailand. Again, folks, if you're interested in Kung Fu, if you're interested in Qigong, if you're interested in just having a really cool, life-changing adventure, please check him out by clicking the link in the show notes. And that'll take you to his website where you can learn more about his retreats, what they entail, and the experience that you're going to have. Because what I saw, everyone had a life-changing experience there. Some chose to stay and continue their education and then become teachers and then take the message of Namyang back to their hometown and start their own school. And again, it's just for those of you out there who might feel a little lost in life or just want a cool adventure, this is a great opportunity for you to check out. And definitely, if you are a martial art enthusiast or a kung fu enthusiast, Master Ian is the guy to go learn from. So thank you again for listening. I think you all are so very beautiful, and I look forward to seeing you next week's episode. Take care. Ciao. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspires you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new, to live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.